that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Hey everybody, my name is Michael. I'm a student going into my third year at Life Sciences at the University of Toronto. And I'm a student researcher by part-time, and I also run a community called Biodojo. Thanks, Michael, for introducing yourself. So as our podcast is called I'm Immortal, kind of a play of the words immortal or immortality, we'd like to ask all of our guests, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? I say to me, it means being free. And what do I mean by that? Being free from the diseases that degenerate the human body uh, over time. That's aging at the most basic level, right? It's the degeneration of the human body over time uh, up until the final endpoint, which is death which changes for all of us. So yeah, immortality really is being free from that, right? It's not it's not having to worry about the degeneration of your mind, of your immune system, of your muscles, of your bones, of your thyroid, all these other essential organs um, as you get older. If you can be free from that, then I say you're immortal. So based on that definition then, would you want to be immortal? I don't think, why not? I mean, I don't think anyone wants to witness their knees start to weaken or their memory start to fade. There's a whole notion of time billionaires where Warren Buffett, where, where you ask the question, what would Warren Buffett pay, you know, trade all his money for? And I think the unequivocal, unequivocal answer is like, you would trade all his money for more time. You trade all his money to be 30 again, to be 20 again. So I think that, I, I think, yeah, of course, why, why, wouldn't I, why wouldn't I want to be free from all that going with this definition? Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, as I'm sure you know, you're more of you're more on the younger side of you know professionals in science, people who are <laughs> you know doing research and stuff like that. So, as someone who is younger, do you have any fears related to aging? I don't think I've hit the age where my health starts letting go, where I have that that crisis in my life. Um, yes, I'm not I'm 19 for context, but there was a moment I recently had where I the thought came to me and it wasn't anything in person. It was when I was looking at a video put up by, I think it was the British Alzheimer's Association. And it was a 360 degree VR kind of video of what it's like living with dementia. Like an, almost like a simulation of what it's like with dementia. And it was going through like a daily scenario, like buying groceries. And just like the sudden loss of like basic memory, oftentimes like basic cognition, that to me was, really, really frightening. I, I don't think I ever felt more disturbed and I've seen some pretty disturbing stuff. I don't think I felt more disturbed than watching that video. Just because like that was the first moment I realized like, okay, aging, like all of us are gonna die. All of my classmates are gonna die and I'm gonna die. But it's, I'm not just gonna die overnight, like likely I'll be dying a slow degenerative path and it's kind of up to me to keep my health in order and hope that I have also been blessed genetically such that when I do die, I don't die that slow. I don't die as much of a slow degenerating path as some other people are unfortunately, um, unfortunately have to suffer with. Wow. That is a really powerful moment. That's definitely not how we first learned about aging. Ours is probably in a book or class. And on that topic, because we know you're in a science major, so you probably can come, you counter more all the biological aspects of aging, right? Whether they're talking about the mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, right? All that kind of stuff. 
so do you think i guess students in general not just necessarily science students do you think you learn about aging as a whole enough or do you think there needs still needs to be a work in terms of education on aging i think there are different aspects of aging that get covered very well and other aspects that get overlooked entirely and that's probably because of how much we know about aging i'd say so if we go with my definition of aging being the degeneration of your body and your mind over time, then one of the biggest things that we can't go on without talking about is the immune system and how the immune system effectively going rogue and turning against you as you get older and not being managed as well. How that is probably one of the biggest contributors to aging, more so than the things you may commonly hear like free radicals or telomeres. I mean, those definitely contribute, but the immune system going haywire against you is probably one of the biggest facets of aging that I don't, I, I have not been, I have not been briefed on uh, in my undergrad degree. What I have been briefed on when it comes to aging, um, being in a molecular genetics major as well, as well as an immunology one, I'm in a, I'm in a genobiology major and where we cover molecular genetics. And in that, in that major, there are a couple of courses on evolutionary biology, ecology that you have to take. And although I wasn't the biggest fan of it in the beginning, it turned out to be a really fascinating course, at least one of these courses, because it covered two genetic theories as to why we are effectively built to die. And it was asking, like, it doesn't make sense. Why would we? Why are we built to die? If we can live forever, then we can reproduce forever. Then why wouldn't nature select for that? Well, then the real the real problem is like, genetic evolution isn't perfect. There's always design trade offs, and not that evolutionary is, evolution is designed, but whenever you swap out something to help reproduce in the early ages you trade you oftentimes trade that that new gainability you trade that for the generation down the line in some degree and that is that right there is probably one of the biggest most profound realizations i had about aging which is like we are innately built to die and trying to approach aging from the ground up is like betting against the house in terms of how we're designed and not just we as humans we as in like most vertebrates <laughs> right uh, like a lot of vertebrates it was fascinating to me so do you think there are any like big generational differences in terms of acceptance of new technologies that are coming out to combat aging and like extend life that's a good question i think pharma hesitancy is pretty rampant across a lot of generations i like if you asked me this before the coronavirus pandemic i'd say yeah probably our generation's more open to it but there is still quite a lot of distrust from what I've seen anecdotally of people our age, right? Of course, there are a lot of people who trust the system, who trust well, big pharma, who trust, and in this case, the COVID vaccine rollout, they trusted what these companies managed to push off. But a lot of people didn't. A lot of people were disillusioned. Uh, a lot of people had doubts, and they don't trust big pharma. And given big pharma's track record, it isn't surprising why people uh, are hesitant to trust them. But I think because of that clear association between therapeutics and big pharma, a lot of people are, say to say, hesitant about trusting biopharma in general. And I think that 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 the consequence of that is a hesitancy against like anti-aging drugs as well. I think if there is a degree of acceptance for anti-aging drugs, it's probably geographical, if anything. So like I'm willing to bet you a lot of money that uh, you'll be you'll have a lot more traction for your anti-aging drug in the Bay Area than you would in like, I don't know, rural, rural North Carolina, right? Or even Toronto. Well, sort of unrelated, well, related question, but not one that I had thought of before. 
But then, you know how in terms of like the tech world, everyone's heard of Silicon Valley, right? It's like, that's where all the innovation's happening. In terms of aging, do you still see there being an equivalent in the US? Or do you think the future of longevity, like there'll be some other country that's leading the charge in terms of all the innovation? A lot of aging advancements, if we're going, still sticking on my definition here, if we're talking about age, like advancements of drugs that will stop aging or therapies that will stop aging, a lot of that is just like in general biopharma because a lot of, a lot of diseases that make up aging are like autoimmune diseases, mm-hmm. neurodegenerative diseases. And even a, lot of, even a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases are seemingly becoming more and more like autoimmune diseases. So I think the real question underneath that is like, where is the bio, where is like the, all the biotech innovation happening? Uh, and thereby, where is a lot of the longevity innovation happening? I think there are a few hubs. There are definitely two big hubs and another like another pretty large hub. So the two massive hubs are Kendall Square, so Boston, the Boston Cambridge area, un- unequivocally um, a huge hub. And the second one is in the, the Bay Area. So the, the Bay Area has a very strong biotech scene. I mean, I, I have some friends at Yale and Stanford who get like knocked on doors by like startups are basically knocking on their doors saying, hey, you want to be an early employee at our, at our company? Wow. So this is kind of like the life that you see at, uh, in uh in Silicon Valley, I can't speak. To, I can't say the same for Boston. I don't know. I don't know about how aggressive I guess the startups are in Boston, but in Silicon Valley, it's definitely uh, it's definitely very out there. <laughs> but really awesome. Like I, I fully respect that. that also. So, I mean, since we're speaking about the future, the future of longevity and the placement it may be at, what about the future of longevity excites you the most? It's just not seeing people degrade, man. Like, I don't know if aging would be that bad if we didn't. Like I, I, I wouldn't mind <clears throat> dying of old age. I just don't want to go through a process mm. of suffering mm. and losing my memory and losing my physical ability to do, to do the things I love in the process, right? If you told me I could live up to age 80 um, or like even slightly below the average lifespan, but not experience degeneration of my mind and my, my body, I would take that deal just because, yeah, I, I want to stay young. <laughs> And I think any old any older person listening here would probably agree. They probably want to stay at their twenty year old or twenty five year old self, because like you can you can just do more, and you have to fear less, right? And like there isn't much of a design trade off there, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. So just to follow up that really quickly, obviously your education and your undergraduate program is rooted in biology and science. Do you think that this education you received compared to somebody who maybe in a different program affects your answer to what excites you about longevity? I mean, I think my education probably allows me to frame longevity in a different way. I think most people frame longevity as in like, okay, we just live forever um, and we stay healthy during the whole process. But there's no like mechanistic definition tagged onto that general idea. So I think what my education has allowed me to do, which is a double major in immunology and genobiology, is it's allowed me to kind of tag on a mechanistic definition of aging, which is like, it's the generation, the generation that's largely propelled by cellular senescence and by autoimmunity. And it's the generation that can be that can be clearly mediated. So I think that's kind of how my education has played a role in helping me shape the idea of longevity in my head. Okay, well, on that note, then, I guess, where do you want to see your education go in the future? Because you're only second year right now, right? And there's plenty more years if, if you want to do med school, PhD, <laughs> maybe both. I've heard some people do that. Uh, what are you thinking for MD in PhD. the future? <laughs> yeah, MD, PhD. So I am one of the few life science students who 
has no ambitions of becoming an MD. I don't. I think there are a lot more passionate people for patient care out there, and I think my passion really lies in design. It really lies in testing things, banging my head on the on the table, and seeing if they work or not. <laughs> and you know, going through that whole uh, labor of love but pain pro painful process of just testing something and trying to make it work. I love that. Um, I live for that. So you could probably then imagine that a PhD is like the the route I'll take after undergrad. But my degree itself is a bit um, will be a bit longer. So I'm doing a five year degree. Or, yeah, five year degree with a co-op an informal co-op year in between third and fourth year. And I'm actually not going to go into grad school right after undergrad, like mm -hmm. most people do. Like I, I can't do that. I don't want I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give you a quick shout out before I ask this question. If you guys go to Michael Chin's website, you can see what he's up to and all of his updates. On top of that, you'll see this one word that I'll ask him to describe right now called synthetic biology. So before we dig into a little bit more of the sciencey questions, I want you, Michael, to just give a quick definition of what synthetic biology is to our listeners. Synthetic biology is the principle of designing something, designing a solution, a practical solution using the parts that biology has given you. I'd say that is a pretty solid definition that I live by. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty simple, short and sweet. And then because you, you talked about your interest in immunology, right? So in terms of yeah. integrating the two immunology and synthetic biology, uh, where do you see any bridges happening? If there's an analogy for how our immune system works, it's a series of robots floating around in your body. These robots can detect their environment, they can see what's happening in the environment, they can get a lay of the land, and then they can make a calculated logical decision on what to do. Whether they should kill something, whether they should call on more backup, whether they should start an inflammation or like swelling, whether they should stop swelling. All of these decisions are calculated by a series of decisions, smaller decisions made by receptors on their, surf on their surface. And this is very much like what a robot would do, right? You can imagine a self-driving car or, a self or like a robot on the road, it's gonna make a decision based on what it sees. Is there a car in front of me? Is there a pedestrian in front of me, et cetera? So immune cells, like robots, have circuits. And these circuits are, instead of being made of wires, of transistors, et cetera, silicon, these, these circuits are made of proteins. They're made of surface cell receptors. They're made of small adapter proteins below the receptor that relays a signal to, the, to inside the cell. And they're made of the cell's DNA itself. The cell's DNA which determines which genes get turned on and off, which in turn is determined by which, what's in the environment. So Synthetic biology comes in here where we ask, what happens if we swap, where we switch and swap different parts of different cells? You, have, you, you may have one cell that's really good at killing. You may have one cell that's really good at uh, killing viruses. Another's really good at killing bacteria. What if we swap them? Or like, what if we tuned a specific receptor to be specific for a different target such that we could get this cell that's really good at killing viruses to maybe kill a certain type of cancer really well? So the practical problem here is disease. And the means to that to solving disease is by mixing and matching uh, the biological parts of immune cells. So, Michael, what developments in synthetic biology or potential relation to immunology can you foresee happening in the next decade? The biggest one is the integration of design principles into immunology. So, I kind of touched upon this when I said we can uh, plug and play immune cells with different immune parts. So let's say you have a receptor for killing cancer that's really good at killing cancer on like a T cell. Then maybe what if we just engineer this, this receptor to be good at killing other types of cancer? So let's say this, cell, this receptor is good at killing breast cancer, but it's not so good at killing like brain cancer or bladder cancer. Could we engineer this receptor to not be good at killing a type of bladder cancer or, or brain cancer, et cetera? 
and this 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 it goes way beyond cancer too. Imagine if we had a if we had a cell that was really good at quelling the immune response, and then now we could use this we can engineer the receptor on the cell to specifically target other cells that are causing autoimmune diseases, right? Let's say you have a few rogue cells that are causing like an allergic reaction or they're causing uh, some sort of degenerative disease. Well, now we can engineer a cell like this, like a, a cell that quells the immune response, that suppresses it, to go in there and actually stop the autoimmune response from happening, stop the immune response from attacking your cell, and thereby stopping a large part of that degenerative disease, which is what aging is a lot of, a lot of times comprised of, right? So it's funny that you mentioned this because um, I've been working on a, a design project called Remedy, basically a, a repository of, of immunological parts, the repository of different, re, of different receptors, different uh, signaling proteins, different transcription factors, and then overall just different circuits that exist within different immune cells for different jobs. And our, what, I, what I basically did with, uh, with a few colleagues of mine under the leadership of a PhD student here at U of T, and was, we basically built like the system, this web, this web page where you can literally click on the website, you can filter by what kind of cell you want, you can filter by what kind of function you want, like killing, like migrating, um, you know, setting infl inflammation, et cetera. And you can basically pick and choose what kind of circuit that you have and what, what kind of circuit that you're looking at. But what is really cool is that you can look at the different parts that make up each circuit and you can literally look at the DNA code that encodes each of those parts. So in theory, you should be able to just look at the circuit and if you had like a DNA printer and you had a cell to build those parts, you could literally print out the DNA and start building those immune cell parts ready to go, such that you can, or, or start building them in a new immune cell. So it's a very much like a plug and play kind of build a bear kind of style uh, for immunology that we, we've designed in our platform, which I'm very excited about. So it's called Remedy, remedyrepo.org. Remedyrepo.org, that will be down in the R-E-M-E-D-I. Yeah. Oh, with an eye. Perfect. And I'm just going to follow up with a question that's a little bit more related to my own curiosity. So obviously with synthetic biology, when I first heard of it, my immediate thought was, oh, synthetic organs, you know, there's a lot of work in that. So uh, I'm not sure what your expertise is in that, but obviously it's able to replace dam damaged organs, anything that may, you know, potentially even give a sense to somebody such as, you know, synthetic uh, ossicles being given to somebody in South Africa just recently, I believe it was a year or two ago. So do you know of any of the current limitations on this technology now? And if it were, if those limitations were to be lifted, do you think it could be extending lives drastically? So the, the whole area of generating new body parts is very much kind of the field of regenerative medicine. So very much the stem cell world. And um, I can speak from my limited exposure to the stem cell world um, through my degree. <laughs> so when, when, you're, when you're trying to build organs, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to replicate, at least in humans, you're trying to replicate almost like the fetal environment, the environment of the fetus. Because that's when, that's when real organ generation happens, right? That's when the real sizing of organs happens. That's when you develop your arms, et cetera. You, you start developing full-on arms, like a full-on brain. All the stuff, all the stuff happens at the fetal stage. So when it comes to like building a new organ, a lot of that is working with the kind of cells that you only have available when you're a fetus and you don't have available when you're an adult. So we're, we're, we're kind of lame as adults. <laughs> Fetuses can freaking generate an entire organ. We're kind of, uh, we're kind of unable to do that. <laughs> so because of that, there's a lot of research that has to be done into the environment of the fetus and how that works when you're trying to develop an organs. Because the, something about the environment of the fetus plus the cells available at the time of the fetus allow for, allows for organs to happen. But if you just have the cells and you don't have the environment, you're not gonna have that same level of growth. 
I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers to, to being able to grow organs right now. It's understanding the, the environmental niche that exists within the fetus. They have, that environmental niche contributes to the organ growing. But if you don't know that environmental niche, you don't know all the parts, the moving parts of that environmental niche, you won't have an organ growing. There are too many unique cues that that niche has that if we don't know about it, we can't replicate it, right? So even if we're not, even if we're not directly using like a fetus to grow organs, we can use the parts from that fetus to make a dish, like a cell dish, to then grow the organ from there, or to make it make like a, a scaffold to grow the organ from there. I'm gonna try to word this question properly. We took an immunology class, I think it was like a third year one, and we learned about you know adaptive immune system, innate immune system. And one of the things they kept telling us, and based on what you told us too, right? Like the immune system, you can sort of engineer it to sort of target certain, I guess, biomarkers of some sort um, to do a certain process. And then, you know, the whole yeah. idea of like, there's an, um, some sort of immune memory, like, you know, your body learns, oh, that's COVID-19, that's bad, right? Um, yeah. So in terms of if we live significantly longer, right? Like there'll be some new diseases that come about. There are a bunch of ones that we already know of that we have to deal with. Does our immune system have the capacity to like, remember all these or is there some sort of like finite limit to how many diseases it's able to target i don't think there really is a finite limit to uh how many diseases that we can target namely because it's, it's very hard to describe this but the immune system works on a lock and key method so remember how i said there are environmental cues that are specific for each disease mm -hmm. like a bacteria specific bacteria cancer cell etc so how does our body recognize these specific uh, these specific locks well our body when building immune cells, it generates immune cells with a unique receptor called a T cell receptor or a B cell receptor, depending on a T cell or B cell, which are the parts of the adaptive immune system. And when it's generating these cells, the receptor is not the same between all the cells. So if you look at one T cell, look at, at another, their T cell receptor will be slightly different. And basically how different is that receptor is random. So your immune system will, your, your body will start like rolling like a million sided dice to kind of just see like, okay, what kind of shape will this receptor be? What kind of shape will this receptor be? And then it's more like a hit and miss after that. So you have all these T cells floating around. And so long as they don't target your own body, they can be floating around, they're okay. As long as they're effective and they don't target your own body, then they're, then they're safe and they're good to have, they'll be floating around. And if something comes into your body, like a bacteria or COVID-19, like, like SARS-2, um, that so happens to fit the shape, if the shoe fits, then the immune cell that fits that shoe will suddenly clonally expand. It'll divide into millions and millions of copies of itself. And then it will start uh, kickstarting the immune response. And a small subset of those copies will be the memory cells. Those cells will, they will not attack the thing that triggered it, whereas the rest will actually attack it. So that's why vaccination is really cool if you think about it, right? So previously you have to rely on one cell floating around to hopefully find its target and then it will expand. But if you vaccinate in advance, that one cell has already expanded. Mm, and now you have a right. small subset of cells that are ready to go when the second when, when the disease comes again. So when SARS-2 affects you again, now you have a whole subset of cells that can expand even faster um, than the first cell did and just like start ramming that uh, infection down, start mowing it down. That's kind of the, the real big premise of it. But as a follow-up then, I'm assuming like, let's say, you know, we have, if you get your vaccination for SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, right? the next time you ever say that virus enters your body, you're able to respond very quickly to it, right? Because there's some sort of memory component. So yeah, my question is then, if let's say I keep, there's all these viruses that keep developing as you age, possibly, like you have to keep having a vaccination for, or your body has to naturally develop some sort of immunity to it. Is there like, is there no limit to how many of those 
like viral infections, let's say you could handle? I think there definitely isn't a limit to how many viral infections you can handle, right? Um, it's one thing to start to survive COVID. It's a very different thing to survive smallpox or Ebola, mm. right? Assuming that you can get through each of those individual diseases and your immune system is building up and up, then you should be fine. But if you get overwhelmed at one point, let's say you have your immune system is down and then suddenly you have a very serious disease or even COVID, then that's a very different story, right? But is there a limit in theory to how many diseases that we could be protected against? I don't think so. I really don't think so. So there's this one area that we're in probably, I mean, it's a little bit outside of your expertise. It's outside of our expertise as well. Um, but just because we were talking about uh, other potential technologies, one that, you know, because we're studying or it's, this whole podcast is about like longevity, immortality, and a lot of people who are like consider themselves futurists or what's the word it's truthful, like immortalists, that is a term like that, yeah. right? They're all talking about this thing called the mind uploading, right? But we're all talking about like, oh, engineering biology. So just as like, I don't know, as Michael Trin, right? What do you think of some technology like uh, mind uploading? Man, it's, 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 it's out there. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I will admit, I don't know if I spend enough time thinking about this, about that specifically, just because I don't know if I'd want that to happen, like at least for myself. Like, I don't know if I want myself to be, my conscious to be uploaded onto the cloud per se. Um, just because like at that point you're playing like an infinite game in the sense that you're stuck there and anyone can hack you at any point. Even even if you have the best security out there, eventually someone's going to breach the wall and then you're, that copy of yourself is screwed unless you can delete yourself. If you can delete yourself and not be restorable, then I might be for it uh, personally, <laughs> but otherwise. <laughs> Sorry, as a follow-up then, because there's sort of like a philosophical Oh, we're getting really hypothetical now, but there's like a philosophical issue with mind uploading where I think some technology proponents, they're saying like, oh, there's an option where you, you die and your consciousness is uploaded versus, oh, you can still exist and you just have a consciousness as a backup or uploaded there. I don't, do you feel any sort of like, I don't know, like identity issues with this almost? Like, do you feel like the copy is you if you continue to exist or can there be two Michael Trins? What's your thoughts on that? I think the key assumption here is that your mind is in your body and that your consciousness is not affected by your body, right? Because that this is saying that we can we can exist independently of our body, which is not true. <laughs> our our consciousness is very much affected by our body. So I can imagine like if I don't if I upload a copy of my consciousness and it's changing if it if it change if it acts like a real human consciousness, if it doesn't have like a gut microbiome, that might be very bad. I might start having massive depressive episodes, right? just as a, as a human being that, that is deprived of that one stimulus. Now imagine all those other stimuli that we just can't account for because we don't know about it and how that affects our mood, right? Being able to see the sun. I think as a human conscious, I'd probably be subjecting myself to like an utmost hell after a certain part. And maybe I could, you know, watch this through YouTube videos, but that's, that probably only provides like a certain cue that the, the consciousness would require to still be happy. So. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the notion of mind uploading, in reality, what it's doing, in my opinion, is, is, is subjecting a copy of your conscious to unequivocal suffering, even if even if not even intentional. Mm. Just because like we're, we're kind of ignorant to all the different stimuli that goes into making the human experience, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump ship a little bit and talk a little bit more about you know, aging and immortality. So a lot of people have different theories. Some people say that when you're, if there is some t type of immortality treatment or life extension treatment, 
they want it to expand their health span, whether that be staying at the same age you are when you take the treatment versus others who say, oh, I would like to reverse aging. I'm 40 years old right now. I take the treatment. I revert back to peak self at 22 or whatever it may be. So for yourself, do you think that if you were to take the treatment, you would be okay with staying at the age you are at right now? Or would you prefer to age a little bit longer, get to potentially an older age and then take the treatment? I mean, I wouldn't mind being 25, being a little bit older, <laughs> uh, and then staying, and then, and then, and then living until 90, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think like, you know, living at your physical peak is probably a nice, nice middle ground. You know, you don't, you don't have to deal with acne, you're, just, you're buff and you're like, you're, mm. you're, you're pretty, you're pretty well off. I think like, if you're like a 15 year old, you probably want to live past that, right? You know, basically, I, like, it, it would be nice to be a little less hormonal, but still be able to do whatever you want physically uh, and still look good. So. Yeah, I'd probably wait a few years. Mm -hmm. And to top that off, another type of philosophical debate both me and Marvin brought up with other guests is the idea that, say, you're a parent and you want your children to live longer. Do you think parents should have the right to administer life extension drugs or therapy to their children before they're potentially at the age of consent or they can decide on their own? We already do that to a degree, right? I mean, we give kids vaccinations against things like polio because they would unequivocally shorten their health span. So if a condition, like a disease or condition is so bad to the point where it justifies like childhood treatment or vaccination or whatnot or what have you, then it probably is justified based on the ethical code that we already have set up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like even these basic vaccinations, they are expanding the health the health span from like age 30, which would have, which which is what it would have been back in the middle ages. The health, like the, the death would have been at like age 30 or 40. So these basic things that we take for granted, like the, like, the, like you know, the polio vaccine, you know, the uh, HIV shot, these really are like expanding the lifespan already. So it's not too far off to say like, you know, if you have a vaccination against arthritis or something or, or like against dementia, uh, yeah, it would probably be justified to do it, in my opinion, uh, early age, because we'd probably do it already. Hmm. Okay. All right. And I got just, we've been talking for a little bit, but I got one last hypothetical question. So if you have any more, you can follow up after me. But one more, just because uh, Sufal actually introduced me to the show called Altered Carbon, right? And in that in that universe, I don't know if you've seen it, Michael, but everybody, oh, you no, haven't? haven't? Okay, man, I don't know. If, it's probably too long to explain, but someone, you guys can go watch it if you're listening. But point is, Everyone in that society has access to technology, and it seems like everybody is like uh, pro-technology um, in a sense. Like once you die, you're able to possibly come back. I won't explain how, but you can come back through some other body. But we know in the real world, not everybody is going to accept technology, right? Like, <laughs> I, I don't accept smartphones right now. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there'll be there'll be a point where people are. Some people will accept all the technologies. Like they'll be like, oh, give me treatment X, Y, Z, everything, right? And some people will say. Maybe maybe they'll make an argument like, oh, I want I want to go all natural. I don't I actually do want to age, right? So, do you see a society, one single society, being able to handle such radically different people, or do you think there's going to be such a divide where we're going to have to have societies for like people who don't have any enhancements and some for like, oh, the super intelligent enhanced whatever people? That's a very good. That's a very good question. I think there's like stages to this. So in the beginning, like life extension, like health span extension. Um, you know, removing the degeneration. I don't think that'll be too controversial because it's very much what we're doing already. It's just finding cures to age-related diseases. I don't think anyone's going to be in the way of an Alzheimer's, of a dementia, Alzheimer's cure, right? I don't think anyone's going to stand in the way of like, you know, a cure for heart, like an instant cure for heart attacks or 
and instant cure for autoimmunity. So I think in the beginning, it'll probably be very un uncontroversial. And I think everyone who sadly could afford it will be able to benefit from it, right? There's still that socioeconomic bomb. But in the future, when you do have this whole notion of like cosmetics, if we, if we do, honestly, I'm very scared for that. I don't, I don't want to see a world where we have like cosmetic engineering, not, not for the sake that it's going to cause that's going to cause like an unfair advantage. I think it might just genuinely mess up the human <laughs> genome, uh, of the, like the genome of the people who try to be that just because like, we have no freaking idea what long-term implications are of like editing, you know, genomes on a large scale. If you like remove like a couple, like if you do like one let DNA letter change, you know, to stop it, to, to alter a gene that's, uh, that will give you like sickle cell anemia. That's very different, right? You're clearly curing a disease while doing that. But to assign a few genes as like the smart gene or like the pretty gene, et cetera, and then try to completely modify that, that takes a lot of trial and error, man. And you have to realize like, if we're gonna do cosmetic surgeries, that means we're gonna have to edit fetuses. We're gonna have to, like not even fetuses, we have to edit like, like recently fertilized egg cells, the cells that are starting to make up the fetus. That's the level of editing that we have to do on. And we, there's like little to no experience of humans being able to edit like those kind of cells and, you know, grow it out into a full adult and see what happens. There's so much at play. I genuinely think the people who try doing that will, will get themselves more messed up than what they, what they bargained for. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that'll be a problem that we're facing in a very, very, very long time. Uh, this notion of like genetic insuper genetic quote unquote superiority of like a specific class of like elites who choose this path versus like the rest of the plebs. I, I don't, I don't think this is going to be a scenario that we face. Okay. So for those of the listeners who are interested in pursuing a career, researching, or just getting involved in the field that you're in, where should they start? And are there any aspects of the field that are currently promising or booming? The, the advice I always give to anyone who's interested is explore unapologetically. This goes for science and also like on a more meta level, just in general, as, you're, as a young person or as a person in general, always explore unapologetically as at random things you find yourself looking into, like Googling and YouTubing. So... If you have like an idea in mind of where you want to be, you'll, you'll want to first find a lab that's doing something cool in that space. So you can find that through university websites, like a faculty websites. Those aren't the best spots in my opinion because the vague, the descriptions are so vague. I think a cool place is actually research podcasts. So there's actually quite a few research podcasts out there. Things like uh, A16Z's uh, BioEats World podcast. There's quite a few of these guys, right? I mean, even you, you guys are a research podcast. So like, Going on research podcasts, shameless plug for uh, I'm Immortal, <laughs> it, it exposes you to different forms of research, right? So basically just find a lab by one way or another that works on something that you find interesting. And then once you, you find a lab, don't directly email the, the professor of that lab. That is a common fallacy I see. You want to find, firstly, you want to find a grad student or a postdoc in the lab who's working on a project that is actually cool. Because you have to remember the professor is not doing the professor probably isn't doing the pipetting or the research herself or himself, right? It's going to be the grad student. It's going to be the postdoc doing small projects underneath that big umbrella research field or research interest. So you'll want to find a specific project to work with because that makes everyone's job easier. It makes your job easier because now you have an exact place where you can kind of gauge your expectations. You can gauge the skills needed. And it's easier for the people in charge because now they can gauge where you'll be. And you've basically done the heavy lifting for them in terms of like HR prep. So find a professor, find, find, uh, find a lab, find a postdoc, find a grad student, you know, learn about the project, read a paper, of course, and then email them a clearly intended, clearly worded email 
saying that you know you want to join their lab under them uh, for an internship you know whether you want to be paid or unpaid that can, that discussion could be had maybe later um if you want to be unpaid put that right in the right in the beginning so it's, it's clear and that probably makes it easier for you to get into but like you know send in your cv and talk about talk about them so like start the email you know talk about them talk about the research the paper that you read follow up that intro with a few questions about you the paper so you, you signal your curiosity and you signal that you actually care about the research and then you know dive a little bit about you but keep it short keep it sweet the real introduction to you will be over a call it'll be an in-person meeting it will not be on the email and then from there like the the ball the dominoes start falling soon enough you'll be in the lab and it's not a surefire it's not a hundred percent guaranteed method but it, it's worked very well for most people who've tried it including myself like, like that's how i work that's how i let it all of my jobs <laughs> so wow that's yeah some really good advice <laughs> so guys take notes um but if there's anything else you want to take away today other than how to get into a lab yeah what would it be the future of aging research lies in learning about how we degenerate and it seems like a big part of that is when the immune system goes haywire and hopefully by looking at biology through the lens of this of rational logical design, maybe we can design our system to be a little bit smarter as we get older, such that it can, instead of working against us, work with us. And to follow up on like a promising opportunity of research that's kind of booming right now, I say neuroimmunology is a pretty fascinating area. We haven't been able to crack dementia or Alzheimer's. We know it's because we've been looking at it all wrong. Uh, you know, throwing one drug at the problem doesn't solve the problem. But there's an entirely other range of dimension of the immune system and how it works in the brain um, and how that plays in, you know, neuro neurodegenerative diseases or even like recovering from diseases that exist right now, things like stroke, like um, multiple sclerosis. So there's so much that we don't know about the immune system in the brain, but it seems like it's playing so much, especially when it comes to this question of aging. So I'd say that's a pretty damn interesting area to work in. Plus, I mean, it's freaking immuno, like, floating robots in your body meeting the brain like i think that's probably one of the coolest things you could probably work on so so michael where can people learn more about your work support it or even get involved because i know before the podcast we talked about a lot of the cool things you were doing and planning to do in the future yeah so um i'm probably most active on twitter so my twitter handle is michael trin t-r-i-n-h uh, 18 at you know in twitter and uh, i also have a website michaeltrin.ca all the links will be in the description and I like to keep my updates uh, pretty concise and to the point. You'll probably see updates from either my research job or from mostly from like the community community that I run, by the job. So there's quite a it's quite a bit going on behind the scenes on my end. Yeah. So for all of you guys listening, any links or the things we discussed will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, Michael, for coming on. I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, guys.